0: Well let's open the word of the Lord one more time to the epistle of James and you'll find chapter 1 verse 27 and then I'll be reading chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 if you'll find those two passages. Let's remember what we've been talking about. For the last several weeks now we've been talking about how James is concerned that his readers and that would include us display a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that's alive, that it's real and vibrant, a faith that pleases the Lord. You might remember from chapter 1, verse 27, James is concerned that that all of us have a religion that is pure and undefiled, that is, in opposition to the kind of religion that he says is worthless, what he will call later a dead faith. And so James, being concerned that we have a real faith, a pure religion, lays out three tests by which we can distinguish between a pure religion and a worthless religion, between a living faith and a dead faith. Well, you know the first test was that of a controlled or bridled tongue. And we talked about the fact that there James is telling us that those who know the Lord should display their faith, the reality of their faith, with the fruit of speech that is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Every believer should be empowered by the grace of God to show his faith by what he says and how he says it. Our words should honor Christ, he taught us. And the attitude in which those words are delivered should honor Christ as well. So that was the first test. We should speak like our Father speaks. But now there's a second test. And it's revealed in the words we're going to read in chapter 1, verse 27, and then beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. Let's read those now. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then notice chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And there we have the second test. And may the Lord bless the proclamation of his word. Well, you can see what the second test is. The second test has to do with our response to those who are in need. According to verse 27, it is about visiting orphans and widows in their various afflictions. And that word affliction, as it's used in the ESV, indicates an experience of life that's very painful and troubling and associated with grief and profound need. So the second test has something to do with the way we respond to needs like that. And he specifically mentions certain members of the body of Christ. He singles them out, and they are identified as the orphans and the widows. And this isn't random. James is not just fumbling around and thinking about the congregation. He is targeting deliberately these people, orphans and widows. Now, why them? Well, we need to go back in time and put ourselves in the shoes of the first-century readers. The Bible they had was the Old Testament. They were steeped in the Old Testament. Many of them were former Jews who had become Christians, and so they they knew the Jewish uh, scriptures. And when they heard the names, or rather the designations, or orphans and widows, their memories would have been triggered. Because they they would have known that the Old Testament speaks very deliberately about orphans and widows. Two of the most vulnerable kinds of people in in all of Israelite culture, even in the culture of the ancient world. When you heard the, 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 the categories of orphans and widows, you would immediately think of the most desperate and needy people in all the world. The orphans and the widows were the most exposed to the harsh realities of life in the ancient world. The most vulnerable members of the church would have been orphans and widows. In a word, they were helpless. Now that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? We're so far removed from such desperate times. And in our part of the world, at least, there are many support structures and programs and agencies that have been created to take care of those who were orphaned and widowed, and we should rejoice in that. But it wasn't the case in the days of the Bible. Back then, orphans and widows had to fend for themselves. Their existence was terrible and perilous, and so James has deliberately targeted those in the body of Christ who are most destitute. Now, in doing that, he's simply advancing what the Old Testament taught. In fact, as you read the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that that God has God has singled out orphans and widows, those most vulnerable among his people, as the objects of his special love and concern. Listen to the way this plays out in the Old Testament. It begins in the Old Testament law code, the book of Exodus, chapter 22. And the law says this, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So there was a law about really watching out for and protecting those who were the most vulnerable. In Deuteronomy 10, God reveals himself as the one who will execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. God specifically targets them as those he wants to surround with protection. And then in the Psalms, The Lord reveals this same concern. Psalm 68, God reveals himself as the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows. That's who Israel's God is. Again, Psalm 82, we are exhorted to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And then we hear it in Israel's prophets As the prophecy of Isaiah commences, chapter 1, verse 16, the prophet looks at the nation in sin and says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, and listen to this, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Again, God is concerned about the most vulnerable. We hear it in Zechariah chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the Lord says. And then with Malachi, God's judgment upon his sinful people is announced with finality and the Lord says to Israel I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against you against sorcerers and adulterers and those who swear falsely and these people here these who oppress the widow and the fatherless God is concerned about the most vulnerable of his people They represent, the orphans and the widows, the most needy, the the most destitute, the most desperate. And why would God do that? Why would God single them out? It's because there's an object lesson there for Israel. And you can think already what that object lesson must be about. The reason God's concern for the most vulnerable is so explicitly reflected in all of the Old Testament is that the entire covenant nation had been the recipients of God's very special love. Israel had been fatherless. In those 400 awful years of bondage in Egypt, they had been fatherless, humanly speaking. They were orphaned, they were widowed. They had been exposed to all the terrible realities of such a harsh and and demonic empire as that run by Pharaoh. There was no one, humanly speaking, to care for them or to defend them or to succor them in their times of pain and tribulation. They were alone. And what did God do with Israel? He, He adopted them. The prophet Isaiah, or rather the prophet Hosea says, When Israel was a child, the Lord says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Israel had been adopted, and Israel had also been married to God. And they left their God, and they went into exile, and they were, as it were, widowed when the Lord brought judgment against Israel, he spoke that word of judgment through the prophet Jeremiah and he says, surely, surely as a treacherous, treacherous wife leaves her husband, you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You see, they, they lost their husband too through their disobedience. And they were all alone. Israel would experience the pains of being orphaned, the pains of being widowed, and they would go away into exile into Assyria and Babylon. And then, after the time of discipline and judgment had come upon them, and they had repented, the Lord restored them to his family again. He, he brought them back as sons. He, he brought them back as his beloved bride. He gave them a home and a, a name and an inheritance, and all by grace. He did all that. He did all that from the deep well of his compassion. And so the Lord says that his people should be compassionate, especially for those who need it most. By being compassionate for those most desperate for it, they will never forget who they once were and they will never forget the God who saved them. They will be putting into practice the kind of compassion and merciful love that they had abundantly received. This is why the Lord has targeted orphans and widows. We also remember that the author of the Epistle of James is indeed James, the brother of Jesus. And bouncing around in his head is is not only the teaching of the Old Testament, but he's remembering the teaching of his brother, Jesus. And what did Jesus say about orphans and widows? Jesus had strong words against the scribes And he attacked them on many fronts, but listen to what he said. Listen to one of the reasons, the anger of Jesus, his righteous anger was turned toward the scribes. He says in Luke 20, Beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses. James is simply echoing the teachings of Jesus and he is saying that the new community of faith, the new Israel, the true Israel, should demonstrate the same compassion that God has always given to his people in their most desperate hours. And in doing that, they are acting out the love and compassion of God. They are being like their father. But notice in chapter 1, verse 27. James defines very specifically how we care for them. Notice the word visit. True religion, he says, is to to visit orphans and widows in their various afflictions. And again, James is not haphazardly choosing words. He's picking them out deliberately. He's drawing them out of the theology of the Old Testament. He's drawing them out of the words of Jesus. Again, this idea of visitation is a rich theological and biblical concept. Let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 21, we have the story of Abraham and Sarah, both very old and both way past the ability to have children. And yet given a promise by God that there would be a covenant son. Sarah is old. There's no way on earth she'll have a baby. And yet the Lord promised. And then we read these interesting words in Genesis 21, verse 1. Then the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And you know what? She had a baby. And she named him Isaac. The Lord visited Sarah. In Exodus 4, we see another image of this beautiful concept of visitation. God calls Moses. Moses is reluctant to go. He he wants a backup quarterback. And the Lord says, all right, your brother Aaron, he can throw the ball sometimes. He can speak good. You bring him along. You go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. i got a mission for both of you. Go rescue my people. Aaron goes back to the people of the Lord, and we read this interesting phrase. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did signs in the sight of all the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction they bowed their heads and worshipped him. Do you see that? The Lord visits his people he sees them in their affliction and they respond by worshipping him. God has visited his people. And then in 1 Samuel 2 there's Hannah the mother of Samuel After Samuel is born, she wants more children. Isn't it interesting what we read? 1 Samuel 2, 21. Indeed, it says, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived, and bore three sons and two daughters. Now, do you see the point? God visits his people, and he blesses them. He gives to them. He gives them mercy. He comes to them personally. He doesn't send them an envelope full of money. He doesn't send an agent or an emissary. He comes to them himself. He comes. And he comes with mercy and compassion pulsating from his infinite heart. And then I suppose James also had something else in mind related to his older brother Jesus. For in Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking of the last day, the day of judgment, when, when Jesus comes. And listen to what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For... I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you, what, visited me. The righteous will answer him with a question, Lord, Lord, we're happy to be going to heaven. But when... When did we see you hungry and feed you? And when did we find you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? When, Lord, did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And watch this. And then Jesus, the king, will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, You did it to me. Here the connection, the relationship between Christ and his church is maximized. Our ministry to others is a ministry to Jesus. Cast in terms of visitation. Those very ones who've been visited by God in his mercy become visitors. We have received mercy, then we give mercy. We don't just throw money. We don't send a committee. We don't create a program for support. We go ourselves as the Lord came. He comes to those who were completely destitute, who were lost, who were in grave peril, who were hopeless, dead in sins and transgressions, and he loves us, and he has compassion for us, and he does something. He does something. He paid for our freedom with his own blood. His mercy and his compassion took the form of ultimate sacrifice. What James is saying to the church here is that the same people who've been saved by God's grace grace, should display that kind of compassion to all their brothers and sisters, especially the most needy among them. They should bear the characteristics of their father's concern. When it comes to compassion, there should be a distinct family resemblance. We should look like our father, the father who comes to visit us and he brings blessings and mercy. But notice how this test now in chapter 2 gets expanded. So let's turn to chapter 2 and read more about this second test. He expands and he practically applies now this test. He's going to tell us about visiting orphans and widows. You'll notice in verse 15 the, the words brother or sister and like the Old Testament, like the teachings of Jesus, there is special focus here upon those within the covenant community who are needy. Now, now, it isn't the case that God doesn't care about the world, and it isn't the case that, that, that we should not care about the world. But love and mercy must start at home with the covenant people. Do you see that? With fellow believers, that's what's in view here. We have a very special responsibility to one another. We are bound, bound by love and close family ties. Now, that's, that's hard, isn't it? Because ironically, maybe tragically, the most challenging environment in which to be loving and compassionate is in your own family. And I suspect that everybody here knows what I'm talking about. For whatever reason, it seems that at least at times it is a lot easier to be merciful to those with whom we have no real connection. It is much less difficult, it seems at times, to love the stranger, to be kind to those whose names we don't know, who who are outside our own families, And, and an example might be a simple one. How often do we give more grace to visitors in our home than our own family members get? How often are we more polite and more respectful and more loving to those who are outside our family than we are to our own spouses or our parents or our loved ones. And that exposes a great and perplexing flaw in our hearts that we would would treat others outside the family with more compassion than our own blood can. And the same happens in the church, doesn't it? How many churches today take up money for the poor and the needy of the world... How many churches engage in great service projects around the globe for the bene- benefit of the neighbors and the entire world at large? They feed the hungry and they clothe the naked, but they don't love each other. And while engaging in all of these humanitarian projects, that church family is divided, it's fractured, it's beset with selfishness. It exists many times in the toxic atmosphere of competition and envy and anger and strife. (laughs) We need to remember the words of the Apostle John, words that should pound our chests with conviction. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love the god whom he has not seen love and compassion must begin here Our ministry to the world will have no integrity and no power if we don't love one another and offer each other the compassion of Christ. We must, to use a Pauline phrase, we must excel still more in love. The very compassion of our Father must blossom and explode in these four walls. You can see in verse 15 that James envisions a desperate situation in the body of Christ. There are members of the church, members of the churches perhaps to whom he is writing, those scattered saints all over the Roman Empire, scattered into little house churches. He envisions certain members of those churches who are in serious need. Notice they are poorly clothed and they are lacking in daily food. The state of affairs is most critical. These Dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ are lacking in the basic necessities of life. They don't have clothing for their bodies, and they don't have enough food. Now, it's near impossible for us to imagine a situation like that in our church. And I thank the Lord for that. Most churches have little of that need amongst their members. But in the first century, that was a common scenario. There was much suffering in the first century church. It would have been very normal for those kinds of needy people to be members of the church, lacking food. James is going to address this. He's going to talk about a man showing up for worship who isn't dressed like you should dress because he doesn't have enough clothing. And Paul. In the mid-50s, we'll talk about people coming to the Lord's Supper and they're hungry because they don't have enough food and, and the supper gets abused because of their hunger. This was a common thing in the first century. But notice what's being suggested here. James is suggesting that these people are so consistently needy that they are overlooked, they become invisible. The well-to-do members of the churches can easily become cold and calloused to their condition. Their patience could wear thin, their compassion would flag, and their mercy might diminish. And James plays out this scenario further. He he imagines some of those very, very needy people being among those house churches. And he says, now, one of you, one of the well-to-do, wants to help, and so you go up and you speak to them. You say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. But you don't give them, as verse 16 says, the things they need for their body. You speak, but you don't give. Rather than helping them, you have something to say. And let me translate this for you. This is a common greeting in the Hebrew culture, go in peace, be warmed and filled. But let me bring it up to speed. You might see someone in tattered clothing. You might see someone whose belly is grinding out those sounds of hunger and you say to them, I'm praying for you, brother. Yep, you bet I am. Now you have a nice day. You kinda click your tongue at them. Or you say, oh, the Lord bless you. I know it's all gonna be all right. God causes all things to work together for those who love him. It's all gonna work out, no problem. And you can quote verses of the Bible. You offer the Christian cliches. Keep up your spirits, don't be discouraged. And James suggests that by any measure that is a heartless reply. The theology you may be speaking could be orthodox, but your heart is cold. It is heartless orthodoxy. It's been said that such a reaction as James is imagining here is insensitive at best, it is neither mercy nor compassion. It is pious words devoid of any substance at all. It is an empty reply in view of a desperate need. Well, then James does what he does, and he does it well. He renders a verdict, he speaks very bluntly. And the verdict, the blunt, in your face verdict for this kind of compassion is in verse 16. What good is that? (laughs) It is completely worthless. And then he utters the phrase that sends electric currents through our body in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now listen to what James is saying. Let's put it in English that we can all understand. James is saying that the kind of faith, the kind of religion that stops at words is worthless. A commentator by the name of Richardson has said this, a word of blessing without the act of blessing is like the promise of salvation without the saving act of God in Christ. Here is a rebuke to all those of us who offer only a claim to faith that is divorced from any concrete evidence of a truly redeemed life. It is a rebuke, a well-deserved rebuke of any kind of compassion expressed in words alone. So to wrap this up, to summarize this second test, it would be this. The second test of true faith, the pure religion, is a heart beating with the very compassion of God. Beating with compassion for those in the body of Christ and especially those in the body of Christ who are in desperate need. That's how you know you have a living faith. Now let's think about our church indeed if there are those hungry and in need of clothing we want to feed them and we want to feed them well and we want to clothe them and clothe them well the Lord may send us people like that I hope he does you know what I hope? I hope somehow the gospel of Jesus Christ will jump the bypass out there and reach into Berkeley and New Hope and Owen's Crossroads where people don't finish high school because they're on meth and they lose their jobs. I pray the gospel we preach in here will jump the tracks. And if they bring themselves to worship, if they hear our invitation, if they learn of Christ, and they want to know what we're doing, and they come in, that we will clothe them and feed them. But there are other ways that people are desperate that go unnoticed. Some are in desperate need of encouragement maybe hanging by a thread. Some are in desperate need of forgiveness. Someone needs to tell them that they are forgiven, that God has forgiven them. They need to hear the word of absolution that Christ has paid for their sins and they are free. And their minds need to be unchained from this demonic guilt that holds them captive. Some desperately need companionship. Some desperately need sound biblical guidance because they're foundering, going in circles. Some need desperately patience because God isn't finished with them yet. Some need understanding, a listening ear. Some need a gentle but firm correction, a no. Some need prayer. Some need an invitation to your house or to dinner. We need to visit them. We need to visit them with compassion. We don't need to wait until somebody orders us to do that or until some program drops down from the session on high. (laughs) We need to visit them. You've already got permission from God to do that. We need to visit them. We don't need to wait around for somebody else to move first. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone in need got run over by people wanting to help them? We need to agree in our souls with the words of Francis Havergal in that great hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. We should say to the Lord, take my hands, Lord. And let them move at the impulse of your love. Well, how do we get there? How can we become visitors? How can we have compassion, the kind that our Father has? Two ways. First, realize who you are and what you've done and how God has loved you in Christ despite your sins and transgressions. To become people of compassion, we must see and confess our desperation before God. A pride-filled, self-righteous heart simply cannot love. Dear God, we should say, show me the sins that you have paid for. Let me not forget the great distance that you reached down to save me. Father, destroy my pride, my self-love, my selfishness, my blindness to the needs of others, my, my tendency to talk rather than act. We must confess our desperate need for the Spirit's power to love one another from hearts that are humble, that are fully aware of who we are and who God is, And how magnificent and extravagant is his love toward us. And then, we need to ask and to seek and to knock on heaven's door until the Lord gives us a love for others that exceeds our love for ourselves. Put on top of your prayer list for yourself, Lord, give me love. Teach me to love. Teach me to be like my Lord Jesus who who emptied himself of all but love, who treated others as more important than himself. Lord, Lord, I knock, I ask, I seek above all things that you would give me love. And he will. That is a prayer he will answer. And you will pass the test we will not have to ask if your faith is real because we will see it. Compassion. Mercy. And love expressed in tangible ways. So love that moves your feet, that moves your hands to care for others. May our Father make us more like himself In this blessed way, may our hearts be full and running over with his compassion. Let's pray together. Father, in these few moments as we conclude at your table, will you show us what love is one more time? Would you help us to get clear what love really is, how much you love us, and then in turn, how we are to love one another. Open our eyes, nourish our souls, fill us with your spirit and his power, and teach us to be like Christ in his name. Amen.